0: As you are, just a reminder uh, that uh, our, for our older children, there are some sermon notes in the back in red folders. A lot of them have their names on them, uh, but if they're if not, feel free to grab one of those. Here we are in the last sermon of of Matthew. We are ending the book. This is our the end of our three year journey. Our one hundredth sermon. I'll pretend like we planned it that way uh, and take full credit for that. But uh, before we get into the word, let me, let me pray for us and um, ask for ears to hear and our hearts that would be changed. Dear Lord, shape us by your word. Help us not to come to, to scripture uh, insisting on our own presuppositions and, and biases Help us to be shaped uh, by Christ, by your word. If our lives and our hearts and our minds are are doing not what you command in Scripture, help us to change. Help us not to justify. Help us not to seek to change Scripture. Help us not even to ignore it. Help us to, to change by the power of your Son and Holy Spirit in whose name we pray. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Hear now God's word for his people. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And when Jesus came to them, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. In, uh, in military jargon, uh, you've heard the, the phrase D-Day, but, it, but it's actually more commonplace than that. In military jargon, the, the D in D day stands for day. So if you're following along, it means day day. Day day was a, was a way to designate an, an important the, the beginning of an important military operation. It was the start of an important military operation but of course, Though there were many D-Days from many operations, there's one D-Day that stands above the rest. On June 6th, 1944, U.S., British, and Canadian, and other troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, an operation codenamed, and I'm not making this up, Operation Overlord. Just epic. A day we now know as the D-Day. Though World War II was not finished that day, it was effectively won. That's why we remember it. There were still battles to be fought, but the war was essentially over after that victory. I would suggest to you, there have been many biblical D-days, especially in the life of, of Jesus, many milestones, right? The birth of Jesus, His perfect life, His death on the cross... But one day stands above the rest. So much so that we have our own name for it. We call it Easter. On that Easter day when Jesus rose from the dead, the, the war was won. Death and sin and Satan were defeated. And yet, there are still battles to be waged. We still have a mission to fight for. So the Lord sends an army of disciples to go on a mission. Not to win the war. The war has been won. But to participate in the victory. And to gather the spoils. So, yes, we've reached the end of the book of Matthew. But as we'll see in a moment, for the people of God, the resurrection signals not so much an end, but a new beginning. In which every believer is given a mission. And what we'll see this morning is that, the what we'll see this morning is the power of the mission the purpose of the mission, and the promise of the mission. So we start in verse 18, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the power of the mission. But for that to make sense, you have to know your Old Testament. You have to know what those hearers would have heard, and they would have heard Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel speaks of four great beasts. This is the context of what you're seeing. And those four beasts represent kingdoms that are opposed to God. Men and and kings and rulers and nations that were trying to exert their will rather than God's. But in the midst of this vision, Daniel sees one like a son of man. And this one like a son of man came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The one who was promised has come. The one who seemed to have No power on the cross has been given all authority, all power. The one who looked defeated has emerged victorious. And look how cleverly Matthew brings his his point home. If you're looking at your verses in front of you, you see that all authority has been given to him to make disciples of all nations so that we would teach them all that he has commanded and he is with us all ways, all the time. all 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 all. Over what does Jesus not have authority? Nothing. Jesus has all the authority. What does that mean for us? Um, have you ever have you ever played chess online? I'm the only nerd. okay um, well, if you have, and, and you're just scared to admit it. Um, there, there's an indicator that, that you only get when you're online. Uh, and, and it's, it's real-life feedback. It's, it's like um, my children with my parenting. It's just immediate feedback. A- a- and when you make a move, it, you know, it'll kind of give you like a smiley face like, oh, nice move, or more often than not for me, you know, not, not so good of a move. You should have done this instead. A- a- and as you keep playing along, what you'll see is eventually – there's a signal for the end. There's, there, there's this phrase that'll come up and it'll say mate in, and it'll give you a number of moves. Let's say 10. Mate in 10. And what that means is that unless you completely blunder and make a ridiculous move, the game is going to end in a maximum of 10 moves. The opponent, if they play perfectly If your opponent plays perfectly, they will still be checkmated in 10 moves maximum. The game's not over at that point. You still have at least 10 moves to make. But effectively, you've won. Effectively, the game is over. Life is not a game of chess. But if it were, the resurrection signaled for Satan... And for sin, mate intent. Jesus has all the authority now. And one day soon, they will all be completely defeated. What does that mean for us? Well, does that mean our troubles are gone? All our troubles are gone? No. Does that mean Satan won't interfere in, in our lives and in our efforts to, to, to be holy? No. Does that mean that we won't face obstacles when preaching and living out the gospel? No. In fact, we're promised the opposite. We will face persecution. We will face obstacles. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you have to know the context of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Paul sings and shouts and rejoices in the fact that Jesus Christ has risen, and he outlines all of the implications. Death, where is your sting? And yet, in chapter 16, you know, kind of like that last chapter when he sends greetings and and we don't pay as close attention to these verses, but this is what he says. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because uh, there's a wide door for for effective work and it's been opened to me. And yet he says, despite Jesus Christ being risen, despite death having no sting, there are still many adversaries we will still face obstacles. But let us not forget what in fact he did say in 1 Corinthians 15. This still rings true. He says, first of all, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Here's what that means. The reason death has power is because the wages of sin is death. Because you are a sinner, and no, I don't need to ask you. I know that already about you. Be- because you are a sinner, because you sin, and you were born a sinner, you have, you have wages to pay. You have a debt. There's a bill coming due. Your sins have consequences. Those consequences are death. And if you're left to your own devices, you have to pay that with your life. Ouch. Death stings. But how was the sting of death removed? The wages have been paid. Your sins have been forgiven. You as a people, as a church, have been ransomed by Jesus Christ. Sting. Death has no sting anymore. Amen? That is the appropriate volume for that. Good job. Thank you. But what else, what else does Paul write? Right? He says, the, 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 the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Not just that he was victorious, but he gives us the victory as well through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since Christ has taken away the sting of death, by paying our debt on the cross and rising victorious, you, brother and sister, Despite the strength of your faith, despite how talented or or gifted you might think you are or are not, you, in Christ, can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, not in your gifts, not in your abilities, not in your talents, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's the power of the mission. So we have to ask ourselves if we as a church or we as individual church members are seeking power or authority from other sources. Are we as a church acting as if the power of our mission comes from our our social media strategy? If so, we're doomed. This local church at least. Are we acting as if the power of our mission comes from the strength of our budget? Or how many people attend Bible studies? Or how effective our outreach strategy is? Individually, what are we living out? Are we living as if Jesus has all authority? Or have we stopped praying for that one family member? That one friend who's just too far gone? They've just been living in sin for so long. I've tried talking to them about Jesus. It just It's no good. I might as well save my breath. Have you given up on someone in your life? Maybe your child, your parents, your spouse. Because, look, it's been enough years. Our ways are set. Our habits are are set in stone. This is just the way it is. You just got to put up with it. Whether you are that person or someone else in your life that you know, let me remind you of the good news of the gospel, Christian. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes definitively and confidently that he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to over to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. In Him, whatever it is that you think has authority over your life, whatever it is that has authority over your life, Jesus Christ has defeated it. So whether whether it's internal. Like unholy sexual desires, or anger, or anxiety, or straight up apathy. Jesus Christ has conquered that. Those things have no authority in your life. Jesus Christ nailed them to the cross and defeated them in his resurrection. Or maybe the pressure is external, like the pressure of fellow moms, or news anchors, or celebrities. Jesus has all authority. From him comes the power of our mission, not from anywhere else. All these other so-called authorities have an expiration date. They have a proverbial mate intent. They might look like they have power. They might cling to dear life. But their defeat is coming. So, because of that, you have the power. You have the power to resist temptation. You have the power to carry out your mission because it's not dependent on you. Because Paul doesn't say your labor is not in vain. Paul does not say that. Paul says in the Lord and His power and His authority, you can know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Amen, Christian. So, what exactly are we laboring towards? Well, the power of the mission enables the purpose of the mission that's why in verse 18 of matthew 28 we see that it leads to verse 19 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore on account of that go and make disciples of all nations uh, this is the part where you might be tempted to tune out because you've heard it before I'm I'm about to tell you that there are four verbs, but there's only one main verb, and the main verb is to go and make disciples. And and you've heard it before. I I get it. I really do. I I, I went to seminary. I've I've heard it lots and lots of times. I get it. Hear it for the thousandth and first time. Because it's important enough to keep repeating it. Because, Because our mission is not go. Our mission is not You love Jesus? Well, go. Just just get out there and go. The, The mission is to make disciples. Think about how intentional and purposeful that word is. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus spent three years, every day of three years, with these disciples, teaching them, giving them wisdom, modeling what should and should not be done. So, We're going to ask two questions and attempt to answer them. Number one, how do we make disciples? And number two, who or what are we making disciples of? If you look at the command, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You do this, this is a modifying word, you do this by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize. That's why we bring people receive as members and you do this by teaching them all that I have commanded you right No, actually it's by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you we can't think that our our mission is to teach people what Jesus says we can't think that our our mission is simply to highlight all the commands of Jesus and go go do them No, our command, our mission is to make disciples. Now, where do you find all that Jesus has commanded us to do? You find it in the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, I know we've said this is our last sermon in Matthew, but we're actually going to go back to the beginning uh, for the next three years and see all that Jesus has commanded us, just to make sure it really sticks. I, I kid. There's an important distinction here. When Jesus says, teach them to observe, Jesus is making, Jesus is pointing out what it takes to do this. It takes time, and it takes access, it takes intentional time. I, I, I can't make a disciple, I, I can't teach to observe all that Christ has commanded to the person that's bagging my groceries. I can't do that. I don't, I don't have the access. I don't have the time in the two minutes that it takes for them to put my groceries in a bag. I can't do that. And here's where we have to be careful. We can get so fired up for one aspect of the Gospel. We can get so fired up to tell people about Jesus or just go and love them that, that we neglect the other commands. The commands to make disciples. To, to walk alongside people. To teach them to be patient, because that's how you make disciples. And when we fail to do that, we, we not only disobey Jesus' command, we, we do a disservice to new and young believers. The, the medical profession has this down. Uh, if, if you want to be a doctor, sure, go get your pre-med degree and then apply for medical school, sure. But after that, there are still Certifications and tests, and you have this thing called a residency where you literally follow other doctors around and they tell you what to do and they tell you the best way to do it and they show you all the various things that are involved in being a doctor. They don't just tell you, read a book and go perform surgery. They disciple you. So Christian, we need discipleship. We are not called to simply make converts and then let them loose on the world. They need guidance. We need guidance, wisdom. We need discipleship. We cannot, for the sake of urgency, neglect the time that it takes to make disciples because we would be neglecting the purpose of our mission. So that's the first question. Here's the second one, much quicker. When we take our time to make disciples, we also have to ask our second question. Who or what are we making them disciples of? Jesus doesn't say explicitly, make them disciples of me, but it's obvious. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, when I am living out the gospel, when I am intentionally talking to others about Jesus, who am I talking to them about really? Am I talking to them about, as we read in our membership vow, the Jesus as he is offered in the gospel? Or some other Jesus? Am I, am I preaching social justice Jesus? Or capitalist Jesus? Or American Jesus? Or Mr. Rogers Jesus? Who just wants everyone to be nice to each other? And, or am I preaching the Jesus as he is offered in the gospel? Then as I look at my life, and my heart, I have to ask myself an even harder question. Am I more concerned with being right, either in person or online, than I am with proclaiming the power and love of Jesus Christ? If I am, then I'm not living out the Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. As a parent, am I making disciples of Jesus or a particular athlete? Which do I celebrate harder? When they get straight A's or, or when I see them being loving and kind and selfless to their brothers and sisters or fellow classmates? When people look at your life, what do they see? As we engage in the purpose of our mission, we have to ask ourselves these hard questions. Because the purpose of our mission to which we have been called is to make disciples of the one who has all authority. And so we do a disservice to show with our lives or to say with our mouths, anything other than Jesus is king is not just untrue, it is unloving. We don't need Jesus and a certain political party. We don't need Jesus and a certain economic strategy. We need Jesus. I love unprompted amens. They make me so happy. But as we keep reading, we're reminded that this mission is not just something we do as we go in our own strength. We are reminded in the promise of the promise of our mission. In the beginning of his Gospel, Matthew made a point, chapter 1, to note that the way in in which Jesus was born took place to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we read this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which we all know means God with us. God with us. This isn't something where you you just receive a certain amount of training and then, okay, go. You're on on your way. Good luck. I'll, I'll be here if you need me, I guess. Jesus is with us. I pointed out earlier that That this, this command to go and make disciples is sandwiched in between two promises. The first is the power with which you go. You go in the authority of Jesus Christ, not your own eloquence or intelligence or abilities. You go in the power of Jesus Christ. That's the first promise. But the second one is equally important. You go with the promise of the presence of Christ. You go in the authority of Jesus Christ, just like an ambassador comes to a different country with the authority of the sending country. But the difference is, unlike an ambassador, you do not go alone. You go with with Christ, or better said, Jesus Christ goes with you. What does that mean as we seek to carry out our mission? It means that our our mission is not just for those who are uh, very eloquent, It's not just for those who have fantastic abilities. It's not for those who have never doubted. Because as Jesus says in in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And when they saw him, just to clarify, they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So so when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Now, let's clarify what doubt means here. This isn't unbelief. They weren't wondering, you know, these aren't atheist disciples. That that doesn't make any sense. These are disciples who love and follow Jesus, but they they were just hesitant. Is this this really you? What what do I do with this? So these are not all rock solid men. Again, read through the book of Matthew. See how many times Peter failed. See how many times the disciples failed. You are not going in your own power and abilities. You are going in the presence of Christ. My children uh, illustrate this still well. When I ask them if they're having a hard time, uh, that's what we call it when they're disobeying. When they're having a hard time, uh, and I ask them to do something, they might hesitate and, and put up a fight, but eventually I give them the look. It's the teacher look. All the teachers know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not a tone of voice. I don't. I don't yell. I don't you know, make mean faces. It's just a look. It's this look. You, you know. You, you know what it is. And and so after that, they'll obey. But usually, more often than not, they ask me this this question, right? It, they they kind of get this little pitiful voice. You know, will you go with me? Go brush your teeth. Will you come with me? Because somehow, that makes it all better. Because when I'm with them, they they latch on to to my power and my abilities. And my my presence, more often than not my wife's presence, encourages them, strengthens them, gives them the ability to do things they thought they couldn't do on their own or that they actually couldn't do on their own. So Christian, uh, hear the good news of the gospel. You, You do not have to do this alone. This is something you are commanded to do. This is something you have to do. But it is not something that you are not fully enabled and equipped to do. We go with Jesus. How does Christ come with us? How is Jesus with us always? If he's ascended to the throne, he tells us himself in John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you, the church, another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Well, he's giving us a spirit, like how how he's going to dwell in us and be in you. But how is that Christ being with us? Well, in Romans chapter 8, we see that this same spirit is called the spirit of God and also the spirit of Christ. And in Galatians 4, he says the same thing. This is the spirit of his son. Jesus Christ is with us in the spirit. This is Christ's spirit. He never leaves us because the promise of Ezekiel chapter 36 has been fulfilled. When God promised to his people that he would put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways and be careful to obey his rules. He goes with us to our workplaces, to our homes, to the city, even to the nations as we go and make disciples. So, as you seek to fulfill your purpose, which is to make disciples in your home, in your workplaces, in your school, throughout the city and even to the nations, remember the two promises that enable you and equip you to do this. You go in the power of Jesus Christ and you go with the promise of Christ. His presence, which we have in the Holy Spirit. So Christian, I, I leave you with this. The victory is won. Satan and sin are defeated. We, we see a proverbial mate in ten. It's over. He's with us every step of the way. So rather than burden you with guilt for not sharing the gospel enough, rather than, than making you feel ashamed for not being holy enough, let me remind you of the gospel that we are about to sing. We see it in the first verse of our next song. It says, O church, arise. Put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. Because now, those who once said that they are weak have the strength. They can say that they are strong, not in their strength, not in their abilities, not in how much of an evangelist they are. Not in how personable they are. Not in how extroverted or introverted they are. Not in how holy or how unholy you are. In the strength that God has given us. Through his son and through his spirit. You have everything you need to do what God has called you to do. Amen? So let us go and make disciples. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you that you are a good God who equips us, who enables us, who strengthens us, who never leaves us just like a good father, good parent never leaves their children. Thank you that we have everything we need. And so help us to go unafraid, unashamed, because you have all authority and you go with us. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and all God's people said. Amen.